Good morning. Turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We have one week left in the Sermon on the Mount after this, and then uh, we'll be taking a short, short couple week break and uh, turn our attention to a couple other things in God's Word, and then we'll be jumping right back into Matthew chapter 8 as we see the authority of Jesus through his miracles. So it should be a, a pretty exciting portion of the book of Matthew to go through as we see the power of our Lord displayed on this earth. Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23 is where we will be today. In the early 1990s, a psychiatrist named Dr. Paul Keck uh, submitted a, an article to a journal and he described a patient, it was a case study that he had, a patient known as the man who thought he was a cat. It was a 17-year-old man who uh, in his younger years, about age 11, uh, had become convinced that in reality he was a feline, he was a cat. And he lived a secret life as a cat. He, he thought he could speak cat and communicate with cat, uh, cats. He, he would go hunting with the feral cats of the neighborhood. He would even eat mice and birds and small game. And as time went on, uh, this conviction that he was a cat became more clearly defined. And uh, he actually narrowed down on the reality that he thought he was a tiger. And so he would wear striped clothes. He grew his nails long like claws and had long hair and a beard to look like a cat. Now, it sounds stranger than fiction in some ways, but this is true. This young man was convinced he was a cat. He really thought it. But, of course, he was not actually a cat. And it's a story that's concerning, right? It's a little disturbing. It's a little funny. It's a little amusing. But we have to ask, is it possible to do the same thing spiritually as this young man? Is it possible to spiritually think we are something that we are not? This is the question Jesus answers for us in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount. And as we'll see this morning, Jesus will tell us that while many claim him as Lord, there are such things as false disciples. In this morning's text, Jesus describes three characteristics of a false disciple in order to warn us about deceiving ourselves and trusting in the wrong things instead of in him alone. Let's read our text, starting in verse 21. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's ask for God's help as we come to his word. Our Lord, we thank you that you have given us the scriptures, that you worked through human authors, Lord, your spirit carrying them along, that every word written down would be uh, the, the right and proper and intended revelation of yourself to us. We thank you that your word is trustworthy, that it is infallible and inerrant. And Lord, that as we come to your word, that we can have confidence that you have a purpose for us in this text today. Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, there is something for us in this text. So, Lord, we pray for your help. Give us understanding, understanding of Jesus' words, and by your help, understanding of our own condition before you. Father, help me to communicate Jesus' words clearly today in a way that's helpful to your people and glorifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
As we see the three characteristics of a false disciple, we see first the empty profession, second the appeal to works, and finally the confession of condemnation which uh, the false disciple receives from Christ. Now a few weeks ago, uh, looking at verse 21, a few weeks ago Jesus told his disciples that there are two possible ways, two possible gates that a person can go. The narrow gate that leads to life and the wide gate that leads to destruction. Last week Jesus warned us to watch out for false prophets who bear no good fruit and who lead people astray from the truth, from that narrow path. But what about those who think that they are bearing good fruit? Those who appear to be doing great and mighty things for God. Well, it is, it is these people that Jesus now describes. The focus shifts from false prophets to those who claim to be disciples of Christ in general. Right? Now, as Jesus nears the end of the Sermon on the Mount, because we're almost there, uh, he makes a somewhat shocking statement. And he's made several of them so far, but he, he makes a particularly shocking one here in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, given that the entire Sermon on the Mount, and really the entire Gospel of Matthew, is about the kingdom of heaven, we should pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. So thinking back to verse 20, while the false prophets that Jesus describes in verse 20 deny Jesus as Lord, these individuals described here in verse 21 do confess him as Lord. Notice it's not just stated once, but twice. Lord, Lord. That's emphasis. Uh, these people are sincere and they're genuine in describing Christ as their Lord. They certainly believe to be Christians. But as Jesus says, not all who claim Christ as Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this passage, in essence, describes what we could call false disciples. False disciples. Now, a false disciple, what is that? It's somebody who might make a profession of faith, right? Someone who may confess that Jesus is Lord. Someone who may think of themselves as a Christian, but somebody who is missing something very, very important. Now, Jesus is, is very clear. Not everyone who makes a profession that he is Lord is actually his disciple. Not everybody who does this, who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody who claims Jesus will be saved. Not everyone who professes to be his disciple actually is. There is such a thing as a false disciple, and there's really no way around that in this text. Right? Jesus really couldn't be more clear. Not everybody who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So how do we understand that? And depending on your background, you may be thinking a couple of questions right now. Right? One question you may be thinking is, well, does this mean that Christians can lose their salvation? Right? Does this mean that Christians can, can maybe be a true disciple and then over time become a false disciple? What, what's going on here? Well, the answer to this question is, is simply no. Christians cannot lose their salvation, and a, a true disciple cannot become a false disciple. Jesus is clear in John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, God's decree, God's plan cannot be thwarted. Jesus cannot but help accomplish all the Father's given him to do, which includes dying for the sins of his people, to purchase the forgiveness of their sins. And all whom the Father gives to Christ, all the elect, they'll be atoned for and resurrected. That's what Jesus just said in John 6. So a genuine Christian is saved by God's gift of grace, and God does not take back this gift at all. But there are people who think that they are Christians and in reality are not. And these are 
false disciples. They cannot lose what they never had. They cannot lose what they never had. Second, what about the sinner's prayer? Right? What about the profession of faith that I made as a child or, or made later in life or what have you? Well, the sinner's prayer or being baptized or even making a profession of faith as a child or as an adult is not what saves a person. That is not what gets a person into the kingdom of heaven. Now, third, you may be thinking, what, what about what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Doesn't this mean that whoever professes Jesus as Lord should be saved? Isn't that what Paul just said? Well, no. Paul does not refer to merely a confession of the lips, but a true saving faith. Notice he brings in the heart. Uh, this uh, profession of faith that Paul describes in Romans 10 is not an empty profession of faith in Christ as Lord, just uttering the words with the mouth and lacking grace in the heart. You see, what the false disciple is missing in their profession is what Jesus mentions next, in the next part of verse 21. And, and this thing that they're missing is so important that without it, Jesus says, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We have an empty profession of faith in Christ as Lord. We will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what is missing in the false disciple's profession? Well, Jesus tells us, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. According to Jesus, those who call him Lord and hear his teaching and do the will of God the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Without any regard to God's will, commands, any confession of Lord, Lord is an empty one. It gains no entrance into the kingdom of heaven because it is not true saving faith. A person who claims Jesus as Lord but then doesn't care about what God's will is for their life or the commands God has given for us to obey, well, they do not have true saving faith. You see, saving faith, biblically speaking, is accompanied by and really proven by a desire a commitment to seek to obey God's will. Right? James touches on this heavily. Now, are we talking about perfection here? No, certainly not. Does this mean that a, a Christian who makes a profession of faith but then sins is not a Christian? No, of course not. But it does mean that a confession of faith, uh, a confession of faith in Christ that's produced by God, resulting from regeneration, from being born again, will always result in a changed life and changed desires. This is what James describes. Turn over to James chapter 2. James chapter 2 for a moment. We'll be looking at verse 14. James writes this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? In other words, if, if a person has faith without works, is that really saving faith? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And then James goes on to, to uh, say in verse 18, someone will say to me, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Do you see that there? Show me your faith 
apart from your works, I will show you true saving faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You believe good things about God. Sure, you do well. But even the demons believe. And they have more fear of God than you do, he says. Even they shudder. Do you want to be shown, verse 20, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then he says at the end of the chapter, verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's dead. True, saving faith, a genuine confession of saving faith in Christ is not empty, but it takes into account the will of the Father in heaven, as Jesus says. If Jesus is truly our Lord as we profess, well, then we will be concerned on some level about submitting our lives to him. As J.C. Ryle says, we must make a practice of Christianity as well as a profession. We must make a practice of Christianity as well as a profession. When Jesus refers to doing the will of his Father in heaven, he's referring to something specific, right? There is certainly the general sense of obeying God, of doing what God commands. But there's something even a little more specific in the narrative of Matthew's gospel. You see, the Father's will, uh, that Jesus describes in verse 21, is that those who hear Jesus would listen to him and obey him. That those who hear the Son would listen to the Son. You remember the Mount of Transfiguration? Where Jesus is there with Peter, with John, and Jesus' glory is revealed. Peter starts freaking out, and he says, Oh, Lord, we have to build some tents. Moses and Elijah are here. We have, to, we have to make a place for them, too. And what happens? A bright cloud, Matthew 17, 5, overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. This is the will of the Father, that we would listen to the Son. Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, is the final and ultimate messenger of God, the last and greatest prophet. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, describes Jesus this way. Uh, it says, Long ago, in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And he goes on in chapter 2 of Hebrews to describe how if we listen to those Old Testament prophets so carefully, how much more should we listen to the very Son of God? That is the Father's will. It is the Father's will that we would listen to the Son and obey the Son. But these false disciples hear the voice of Christ. They hear his teaching. They hear the Sermon on the Mount. And they agree, oh, that's a very good sermon, a very good message. Some really good things in there. And then they go home and they don't actually consider what it says or how they will obey what Jesus has laid out for them in the text, in his sermon. This is why Jesus says in Luke 6:46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? That's really the heart of it right there. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you hear the Son, but not listen to the Son? A false disciple is concerned with making the right profession of faith, to be sure. <clears throat> Right? We want to have good theology. We want, to, we want to say the right terms and the right words. But are we actually interested in obeying Jesus? Charles Spurgeon says, We may believe in our Lord's deity, 
We may believe Jesus is God, and we may take great pains to affirm it over and over and over with our Lord, Lord. But unless we carry out the commands of the Father, we pay no true homage to the Son. So, friend, is your profession an empty one? Do you confess Jesus as Lord, but show no desire or effort to obey him as Lord? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. Of course, on the other hand, it's often the case that false disciples appeal to what they think are good works that God desires. Let's look at the next verse, verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And the second characteristic of a false disciple is the appeal to works. The appeal to works. Jesus tells us in this verse that there will come a day when false disciples discover they were not truly Christians at all. And what is that day Jesus mentions? Well, it is the day of judgment. It's what the Bible calls the day of the Lord. The Apostle Paul describes this day, which he calls the day of wrath in Romans 2. He says, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey in righteousness, there will be wrath and fury. This is the day of judgment, the last day of this age. This is the day when God brings justice to pass for all people. For all who stand before him and are judged by their own works, they will receive the just condemnation for our sins. We would receive that if we stood before God and were measured by our own lives. Sure, we may have some, some good works over here, but the list of ways we have broken God's law is far, far longer, and God does not grade on a curve. So for those who stand covered by the work of Christ, instead, God gives eternal life to. But notice how in verse 22 of our text, on this day, notice who these false disciples are speaking to. They're speaking to Jesus. They are saying to him, Lord, Lord. And that's because Jesus is the one God has appointed to be the judge of all people. We read this in Acts 17, 31, during Paul's sermon at, uh, at Mars Hill. Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's Jesus. Jesus has the job of judging the living and the dead. And so they are speaking to him on that day. And this day that Jesus describes is the day of ultimate and final judgment, where everybody's destiny is, is revealed. At the return of Christ, all people are brought to account. But as Jesus mentioned in the previous verse, on that day there will be many who thought they were going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but they will not. And when this is revealed, what do they do? They make an appeal to Jesus, right? In other words, they're, they're trying to perhaps change Jesus' mind. And it's worth noticing right off the bat, the fact they're making this appeal shows they really did think they were Christians. You know, they don't, they don't, receive this verdict and go, well, you got me, Jesus. You know, the gig's up. You saw, you saw through it. No, they are surprised to find out they're not entering the kingdom of heaven. And that comes out in their appeal. So the false disciples appeal to two things in, in protest of Jesus' judgment. First, they appeal to their profession of faith. They say to Jesus, Lord, Lord. Again, there's that emphasis. 
Lord, Lord, just like in verse 21. They make an appeal to Jesus. We, we claim you as Lord. Don't you remember? Don't you remember the sinner's prayer I prayed? Don't you remember that I, I always said I was a Christian? Don't you remember? Lord, Lord. Even in this last moment, they appeal to their claims of Christian sincerity as a reason that they should be considered true disciples. We really meant it. Lord, Lord. In other words, they're saying, Jesus, we, we made that profession. Isn't that what gets us into heaven? Us doing that? Us saying those words? Isn't that what gets us in? So the first, they appeal to their profession of faith. And second, I think this is really the heart of the, the nature of a false disciple. They appeal to their works. They appeal to their works. They say to Jesus, didn't we do these great things in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do great and mighty works in your name? Weren't we busy for you? Didn't we do all these things for you? That's what they appeal to. They appeal to their prophesying, casting out demons, doing mighty works. That could include healings, miracles. All these things could in indicate God's favor and authority upon a person. Right? And perhaps that's why these false disciples thought that they, were, that they were in, because they were participating in these things. But that's not always the case. If you remember in the Old Testament, King Saul, who was, who was not favored by God, ends up prophesying. Right? So uh, simply doing these works is not a sign of God's favor. And it appears that these false disciples are relying on these apparently wonderful things that they were doing, in the name of Jesus no less, as proof that they were destined for heaven. Now on the surface, prophesying, casting out demons, doing mighty works, that, that seems spectacular and great, doesn't it? Well, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. And it's not like they were doing it you know, apart from discipleship to Christ, they were doing it in the very name of Jesus himself. Doesn't that mean they're doing it for God's glory? How could these things not be doing the Father's will, like Jesus says in verse 21? How could these things be displeasing? Well, first, the things that they appeal to, right, prophesying, casting out demons, doing mighty works, are not the things that Christians are told to be primarily concerned about in Scripture. Those are not the things that Christians are supposed to be pursuing and being busy with first and foremost. The apostles did these things, for sure, but they had a specific role in church history. And these mighty works, as Hebrews 2.3 tells us, were done as a stamp of God's approval to the message they were preaching. With the closing of the canon, that stamp of approval is no longer needed. So these, these Amazing supernatural works are not the things that Christians are to be busy pursuing or practicing. These things are not what Jesus describes as good works in Matthew chapter 5. The Father's will is not for you to go around doing all of these amazing things. It's for you to grow in everyday simple obedience and holiness to God in good works. As 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. In other words, God's will... The Father's will is for you to be more like Christ in his character, not in his power. Brothers and sisters, God is far more concerned with you dealing with the sins of anger, jealousy, pride, lust, unforgiveness, greed, so on and so forth, than with whether you can prophesy or cast out demons. God is far more concerned with whether you love your neighbor than if you can do great miracles. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13? Right at the beginning of the chapter, he says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, 
In other words, if I'm the super Christian, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It is more important and more in line with the will of God that you would grow in your love for him and for other people, that you would grow in godliness, than that you do amazing supernatural works. These false disciples were concerned with the wrong things. It's very possible they were neglecting the things that God desired them to focus on, loving him and loving their neighbors. <clears throat> As one commentator remarks, what matters is not acts of power, but the fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But what about the fact that they did all these things in Jesus' name? Doesn't that count for something? Well, uh, when we're doing things for our own glory, it is unfortunately all too easy to slap Jesus' name on something and deceive ourselves into thinking we're really doing it for him. That is far, far, far too easy, especially for people in positions of, of you know, authority or, or teaching positions or whatever in the church. It's very, very easy. And we've seen that with many, many Christian leaders, even in the past few years, who have these catastrophic falls from ministry. Third, good works or mighty deeds are not what get us into heaven, even if we do them in Jesus' name. These false disciples essentially argue to Jesus, hey, we're real disciples. We are entitled to enter heaven because we did all these things for you. We did all these activities. You know, I, I cannot help but wonder how many Christians today, right, will say to Jesus on that day, well, Lord, Lord, I, I, I went to all the Bible studies. I went to church twice on Sunday. I read my Bible four times a day, right? I evangelized as many people as I could. I, I even held the right political views. Jesus, am I not truly your disciple? Can I not enter your heaven? I did all these things, all these good things. And, and we did just talk in verse 21 about doing God's will, right? Are these activities, going to church, reading your Bible, right? Doing all these things, evangelizing, those are good things to do, sure. Can they be pleasing to God? Absolutely. Are they what make a person a Christian? No, they are not. Are they what gain a person entrance into heaven? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. These people appeal to their profession of faith, but it is not your profession of faith that saves you. It's not your decision to follow Jesus that saves you. It's not the sinner's prayer that saves you. It is Christ that saves you. Uh, these people appeal to their wonderful spiritual works, but it's not your religious activity that saves you. It's not any supernatural things you can do that save you. It is Christ who saves you. These false disciples may have been busy with good activities, but what they trusted in was their works as sufficient to save them. They trusted in what they did for God instead of trusting in what God did for them through Christ. Uh, they did not put their faith in Christ himself, in his work, in his person, his, his life, death, and resurrection. That's not what they were trusting in. They trusted in what they could do for him. If I were to ask you today, why should you go to heaven? Think about what you would say. And if your answer is anything different from the basic idea that I shouldn't go to heaven, but because of what God has done through Jesus, by sending him to die for my sins, by faith he has kindly and graciously promised to me that I may go there. If your answer is different than that, if your answer is, well, because I've done all these things, you may not understand the gospel. You may not understand the message of good news 
you may be still trying to earn your way there under the pretense of being a Christian. The false disciple says, I should go to heaven because of my great works for Jesus. But the true disciple says, I can only go to heaven because of Jesus' great work for me. And ultimately, soberingly, the false disciple who trusts in his own work will be condemned on the last day. And that's the third characteristic of a false disciple. They receive a confession of condemnation in verse 23. Jesus says, Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, just as Jesus described the words of the false disciples when they discovered they were not really disciples at all, Jesus now describes his final word to them in verse 23. And it is it's a very serious statement. It's a very heavy reply that Jesus has. Now, in the English translation, we read, I will declare to them. But in the Greek, we actually find something a little bit more specific, homologeso, which, which means really, I will confess to them when we, when we have a, a confession of faith, right? It's the same kind of idea. Literally, uh, it, it describes judicial language, like a judge handing down a sentence that is solemn, public, and irreversible. Uh, in other words, this is Jesus responding as judge. This is his final pronouncement to the false disciple, the, the, the binding sentence on their souls. And it is, is terrifying. It's a terrifying response. And Jesus' confession to them reveals three things about these false disciples. First, Jesus says to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. For all their professions, all their mighty works, all their prayers, Jesus does not know them. He never did. There was no real relationship between these disciples and Jesus. There was no relationship there. They were not united to him by faith. And as Jesus makes this confession that he never knew these people, he's not saying that he wasn't aware of them. Uh, he's not saying that he doesn't know who they are in, in terms of his omniscience, right? He's referring to something much deeper than that. He's ultimately referring to the basis of man's relationship with God, which biblically, right, are called covenants. God makes covenants with mankind all throughout Scripture. And when we look at these covenants in the Bible, we see that God is the one who initiates them all. It is God who comes to man and says, I would like to make a covenant with you. Every time God initiates those things, he is the covenant maker, he is the covenant keeper. And God knows his covenant people in a unique and special way. God's relationship with the nation of Israel, for example, was much different than his relationship with any of the nations of Canaan or his relationship with Egypt, right? God did not know Egypt like he knew Israel. There's a difference there. And when it comes to the new covenant, or, or what theologians call the covenant of grace, this is true too. Um, you see, God has what we call foreknowledge. We've got to get a little theological for a second, so hang in there. God has what we call foreknowledge. And we read this in Romans 8.29 when Paul writes that uh, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Or Romans 11.20 when Paul says that God foreknew his people. What does that word mean? What does foreknowledge mean? It gets misinterpreted a lot. A lot of people think that foreknowledge means God looks ahead, sees what people are going to do, the choices they're going to make, Who's, who, who would choose him of their own free will, and then that's who God 
foreknows and chooses to save. But that's just not biblical. It's just not found in Scripture. You can't construct that definition from the Bible. It's just not what foreknowledge means. W.R. Downey, in his commentary on the Baptist Catechism, gives an excellent definition of what foreknowledge does mean. It is covenant love grounded in divine prerogative and expressed in free and sovereign grace. I'll say that again, and then we'll kind of break it down, right? Foreknowledge is covenant love grounded in the divine prerogative and expressed in free and sovereign grace. In other words, right, in, in everyday language, God's foreknowledge as it relates to his people, is the personal, loving, covenantal knowledge that he has of each person whom he has sovereignly chosen and predestined to eternal life in Christ according to his grace. God's foreknowledge is not based on our choices, but upon his. So those whom he foreknew are those whom he, from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, sovereignly chose to save according to his covenantal purposes. Just chew on that for a second, right? That's a lot, a lot to process through. But that's what foreknowledge means. So when Jesus, bring it back to our text, the judge of the living and the dead, who is God in the flesh, who shares a will with the Father, tells these disciples, <clears throat> I never knew you. He is revealing that these people are not foreknown by the Father or by the Son and that they have no covenantal relationship with him. It's not, again, that Jesus doesn't know them. It's that he never knew them. They were never from eternity past foreknown by God in a saving and covenantal way. And as a result, these true, or these false disciples, excuse me, they were never regenerated. They were never converted. They may have professed with their lips, but there was no true response of saving faith and genuine uh, repentance to the gospel by God's grace. And maybe they were drawn to Christianity for intellectual, you know, the framework of it, some, some good ideas to chew on, or the social benefits of going to church, or uh, the, the good morals of Christianity, perhaps. But they were not drawn to Christ. They were not drawn to Christ. There was no real relationship with Christ. No spiritual life drawn from him. Second, Christ tells these false disciples to depart from him. <clears throat> you can imagine the scene as they stand there before the, the throne of Christ and are told to depart from him. They're cast out from his presence and are barred from entering heaven's gates. Why? Because they really have no claim, no right, no basis to enter heaven. We've seen from the text already that they haven't trusted Christ to save them. Uh, they don't have a relationship with him and it is only through Christ that anyone can access the kingdom of God at all. It's what we read in Ephesians 2.8. Through Christ, we have access in one spirit to the Father. So our access to God, our entrance into his kingdom, only comes through Christ. And this is why Jesus describes himself as the door, right? In John 10.9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Again, this is why our assurance and confidence must not come from our works or abilities or labors, but from Christ's work for us. This is why the author of Hebrews tells us that uh, through Christ, because of what he has done, we have a confidence to enter the presence of God in worship. And, and he encourages us, let us draw near to him with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Notice the difference there. For those who, whose confidence is not in themselves but in Christ, the instruction is not depart from me but draw near. But these false disciples, as we've seen, 
are trusting in themselves, not in Christ, not in his work. Uh, their sins have not been forgiven because they have not trusted in the one who can provide atonement for them. And because their sins have not been forgiven, Jesus in his justice sentences them accordingly. They cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. So when Jesus says, depart from me, we have to understand really what he's saying. He's not sending them off to limbo or to purgatory or to a waiting room. Um, he is sending them to hell. He is sending them to hell. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 25 when he describes the same judgment. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I realize this is very serious stuff. This is heavy, weighty stuff. I, I hope you did not come to church today hoping to feel, you know, really energized and great. You know, this is not, uh, this is not a happy message, is it? It's a very serious, sobering one. But it is what God's Word says, and there's a reason why it is in the Sermon on the Mount. Because we need to hear it. You might be tempted to think that this is harsh, that Jesus making this pronouncement is harsh. After all, weren't these false disciples just a little misled? Right? Weren't, they, weren't they almost on the narrow path? Right? Weren't they trying to walk there? Well, unfortunately not. Look how Jesus describes them in the last part of the verse. Jesus describes them as workers of lawlessness. He says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As many great works as he might have done on the outside, prophesying, casting out demons, ultimately they were just like every other unsaved person, living not for the will and for the righteousness of God, but living according to what they thought was right in their own eyes. But these false disciples uh, apparently did so internally, secretly. Right? Their ultimate goals were not exalting to Christ or, or honoring to him. And one commentator notes that the implication is that all of this charismatic activity, like their profession, Lord, Lord, was merely a veneer on a life fundamentally opposed to the will of God. So consider this within the context of the Sermon on the Mount for a second. Jesus has just preached a very intense sermon. He's talked about a lot of really important moral issues. Murder, anger, lust, right, adultery, divorce, unforgiveness, right? All these things. Treasuring uh, this world more than uh, treasuring heaven. And there were doubtless some in the crowd at that day who thought it was all very good. And maybe wanted to be part of this new and exciting religious movement but who had no real interest in being under the kingship of Christ, of submitting their lives to the law of his kingdom. And so they were workers of lawlessness, ultimately. Even though they may have done these great religious things, they did not do it truly for Christ. And in the, the aspects of their life that God is most concerned about, there was not much spiritual activity going on at all. Now, as we come to a text like this, I understand it can be very troubling. It can be a very concerning text. And I'm sure that in, in some of your minds, there is the question of, could this be me? Is that going to be me on that last day? It's a natural place to go. Because after all, we're, we're all aware, we should be anyway, of the areas where we don't obey Christ like we should. We're all aware of those areas where we continue to sin. So does this mean we're not real Christians, right? Does this mean we're the false disciple? 
And I can't stand before you here as judge and jury, right? That's not my job. I don't want to provide a false assurance of salvation to you. And I don't want to needlessly undermine your assurance of salvation either. But I think there's a way to helpfully approach this text without missing the point. What ultimately is the mark of the false disciple in this text? Well, it's that they're trusting in themselves. They're trusting in the profession of faith they made. They're trusting in their work. And all of that comes down like a house of cards before Jesus, the judge, who knows all things. Should we take our spiritual fruit into account? Should we take uh, our, our, our pursuit of holiness into account? Absolutely. We can't ignore that. We shouldn't ignore that. If you have zero desire to obey God and you profess Christ as Lord, you're, you're not a Christian. It's as simple as that. But can our performance and our goodness be where the true assurance of salvation is found? In other words, is how good of a Christian we are the test of whether we are a Christian at all? No, certainly not. You know, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin wrote that many genuine Christians are troubled because they end up too much carried away with the rudiments of Christ in their own hearts, in other words, how much they love or follow Christ, and not after Christ himself. In other words, we can get too caught up in how well we're doing as a Christian, and since none of us are doing as well as we would like to be, it leads us to discouragement, rather than turning our attention to Christ and his work for us, which is where true assurance can be found. So with those caveats in place, right, because we don't want to soften what Jesus is saying here. We don't want to take away the gravity of what Jesus is saying here. But we also don't want to misunderstand Jesus' purpose here. The warnings of this text are serious, and we must consider them deeply. And so the question really boils down to this. Do you trust Christ alone, or do you trust in your Christian life alone? There's a very big difference between the two. Do you trust Christ alone? Or do you trust in your Christian life alone? You see, these false disciples, they ignored their sins. They ignored their failings. They ignored their weaknesses. And as a result, they never saw their need for Christ. They never had a heart changed by the Spirit to desire obedience to Him. Like the man who thought he was a cat, they, they convinced themselves they are something they are not. But it's just a facade, right? They're out of touch and in denial about the condition of their own hearts. The true disciple, on the other hand, is keenly and painfully aware of their sins, failings, and weaknesses. And as a result, they can go nowhere but to Christ. They, they say, I have nowhere I could cry out to but Him. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Brothers and sisters, is this your song? A song of complete dependence upon Christ, the rock of our salvation? Or, or is it a song of, Lord, Lord, look at all these things I've done in your name. Is your hope of heaven based on what Jesus has done for you or of what you have done for him? It's a question worth considering. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, it is so clear 
from our text this morning, Lord Jesus, that you did not say anything to gain anyone's approval, but your Father's. These are hard words for us today. Lord, as we consider your warning, help us not to brush it off. We pray for your help, Lord, in considering our own hearts, our own lives, our own objects of faith, what it is that we're truly trusting in. Lord, is it ourselves? Is it you? And Father, we, we thank you that you allowed us to hear this warning from Jesus today rather than on the last day, that there is still time to turn to Christ. Father, I, I pray that you would help us to consider Jesus' words. And Lord, if we find ourselves to be false disciples, trusting in ourselves, that you, by your grace, would help to turn those people to Christ, where salvation and grace and, uh, Lord, peace is truly found. Lord, may we not deceive ourselves, but search our hearts by your Spirit. And Lord, may we rest upon Christ and his work for us alone, because that is what saves us. He is who saves us. So may he be the object of our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.